I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We're your man-children of minutia, <laughs> your rebels of really granular details, your bicycle thieves of banality, recording live from the basement of the Alamo... <laughs> My name is Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And welcome to the first in our two-part tribute to the late Paul Rubens, or more appropriately, Pee Wee Herman. The performer died on July 30th of this year, six years after being diagnosed with cancer. In a statement shared just after his death, he said, Please accept my apology for not going public with what I've been facing the last six years. I always felt a huge amount of love and respect for my friends, fans, and supporters. I have loved you all so much and enjoyed making art for you. And his passing in a strange way, now hear me out, Igel, because I, I this is going to goad you, reminded me a bit of the death of David Bowie, in the <laughs> sense that the patron saint of weird misfits had left us in a very sudden, unexpected way. And, you know, I mean, I have to say, I was somewhat shocked by the immense outpouring of grief that I saw from all corners of the internet. And, you know, I'd watched Pee-wee's Playhouse as a kid, and I had a passing familiarity with Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but I'd sort of filed Pee-wee Herman away in my internal Rolodex as just another relic from the 80s monoculture. But I think that people really responded to the genuine weirdness, both of the character and its creator, who marched so fiercely to the beat of his own drum. He said repeatedly that through the playhouse, he was, quote, just trying to illustrate to kids that it's okay to be different. Not that it's good, not that it's bad, but that it's all right. So in today's episode, we're going to examine the creation of the character and his rise to global fame in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the feature film. And next week, we'll touch on the groundbreaking TV series and the behind-the-music-style fall from grace and redemption arc. You all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Heigl, 
your thoughts on the film or this deeply unsettling character in general? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, this never a big guy for me. Um, missed the Playhouse stuff. This movie wasn't huge for me. There's something, there's like an unsettling, roiling heart of darkness at the heart of this. Like in the way that there's like, um, it's like, it's, it's like, did you ever watch the Judy Garland Christmas special from the mid 50s? Shockingly, no. I'm actually not totally sure what you're talking about, which is really throwing me into a state of, you know, I thought I knew myself better than this. I no, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's like her and the whole family, all the kids, and but oh, there's just it's like about her, her and her like clearly it's like pilled out, ginned out Judy, and and there's such a like Lovecraftian madness at the edges of it. It's like psychically humming with dark thrumming, malevolence, thrumming, thrumming. Yes. Yeah, what's that Manic Street Preacher song like the 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 humming of evil or the low humming of evil or something like I get that same vibe from Pee-wee's Big Adventure <laughs> because it's just like there's something almost lynchian. Oh yes. To how mid-century kitschy and annoying it is. Like I feel like he would not have been out of place in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Like that oh. like this would have been like a, a character that like Lynch would have like popped into Twin Peak or probably Mark Frost, but David Lynch would have found this funny. I'm sure David Lynch would find Pee-wee like hilarious and just be like, ah gee. That's that's a great bit you're doing there, Paul. What? What? No, I don't remember that. Oh, okay. Um yeah. I, I yeah, I find him so unsettling. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, you're right. He he's a human ventriloquist dummy. It's just the yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I didn't it's so aggressively kitschy, but it has that unpleasantness of like a child throwing rocks at like a bird. You know, in that way that like little kids can be really, really cruel. There's like a hint of insanity under it that I'm just like, I recoil at. And so it was not a part of my childhood at all. But um, so many people like, yeah, like when he died, so many people came out and said he was this huge like foundational figure. So I have no choice but to tip my hat. Um, obviously, it's one of the things that got Batman made. And then consequently, <laughs> Batman Returns, one of my favorite movies of all time. So that that's like... That has to go in there. Sp side note, we should do Batman Returns. You know what? We'll, we'll do a two-part. We'll do Batman and Batman Returns as a way to make it up to you for doing two episodes on Pee-wee. I mean, yeah, like while we're doing Tim Burton month or whatever this ends up being. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It was just not, he was not like a big guy for me. I remember him best as actually the stench or the farter or something in Mystery Man. Mystery Man, yeah. Like a movie yeah, yeah, I yeah. watched way too much. <laughs> Well, I liked all sorts of weird stuff as a kid. So, you know, from bowling to old life magazines to the little French orphan Madeline. So mm. it's always weird. Like, I never know when something was big for me or big for everybody. So I think maybe it just caught me off guard that Pee Wee is as big to everybody else as it was for me as a kid. Um, it was definitely unsettling. I knew that as at the time, all the way down to his laugh. I mean, it, it's it, it's very scary. You know what I was? I think my parents liked it maybe more than I did because it was more palatable than, you know, some of the more benign kid show stuff. So maybe they preferred having that on because at least it wasn't completely lobotomized in the way that so much of like, you know, children's programming during our, our childhood was. 
Do you think it's supposed to be sinister? I'm trying to figure out, put my finger on what exactly is sinister about it. I mean, Letterman had the great quote. I, I was reading about the character and Letterman had this amazing quote that I, I actually think articulates everything that we're trying to, which is, uh, it has the external structure of a bratty little precocious child, but you know, it's being controlled by the incubus, the manifestation <laughs> of evil itself. <laughs> But I'm just I like, mean, what the, where the, like, that's what's so fascinating to me is like, it does seem so sui generis to use a, a, a very lofty term, like without, like, where did this come from? I mean, one of the influences that I read about it was um, TV host in the fifties, Pinky Lee. Yeah. But that's not quite it. There's like no. a weird, there, it's like that Uncanny John, Valley. yeah, it's like that and John Waters or, and, and some, yeah. you know, some kind of. I just maybe because I am a bit of East Coaster for so much of my life, I'd never had a handle on the like sun baked nineteen fifties like desert kitsch, mm. like Palm Palm Springs. That's what I'm describing. Right, Palm yeah, Springs. I've yeah. never had a handle on that as like an aesthetic. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I would argue that nobody does. I think it, it kind of. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think you're missing anything. I think it is an inherently uncanny valley, mm. um, perfect store bought dull pre-made prefab existence i think that's yeah. i don't think there's anything deeper there that you needed to grow up on the west coast to understand is, okay. is my guess at least well strap in for a truly weird episode if this intro is any indication from paul rubin's early brush with children's tv greatness to his friendship and falling out with the late great phil hartman the genesis of that truly insane voice and ridiculous suit and the surprising early script of the feature film that never saw the light of day. Here's part one in our two-part episode about Pee-wee Herman, exploring everything you didn't know about Pee-wee's big adventure. <laughs> Sorry if when you pitched this show, you were like, one day we'll be doing a two-parter, a two-hander on Pee-wee. You're like, I'm not, Jordan, what's wrong with you? Uh, I, owe you I owe you a two-parter on, on Batman. <laughs> That w which I will happily do. Actually, that would be really fun. We should do Batman and Batman Returns. I don't like the first one as much as I like the second one. The second one is just so maximalist. I mean, yeah. Jack, first one has Jack, but, you know, whatever. Sorry, keep going. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Paul Rubens created a whole elaborate backstory for Pee-wee, which we'll get into in our next episode. But for years, very little was known about the man behind the bow tie. He was born Paul Rubenfeld in 1952 in the artsy New York City suburb of Peekskill, where I believe the gentleman who wrote and performed the TMI theme currently lives, Seth that Applebaum of Ghost Funk Orchestra. Do I have that right? That is correct. Wonderful. Shouts to also Bettina and her uh, new thriving deli. Yes, that's right. Be uh, Benny's Brown Bag. Benny's Brown Bag. Yes, yes, yes. Check it out. If Check it out if you are in the Peekskill area. Does that entitle us to free sandwiches for like a couple months? Yeah. <laughs> also from Peak Skill, in addition to our friend, Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Paul Rubens and Mel Gibson were born six months apart in the town of Peak Skill was always a great source of amusement and fascination to Paul. But what fascinates me is the Rubenfeld family because they are extremely colorful. Paul Rubin's father, Milton, was something of a military hero. He was a fighter pilot who became one of the five founders of the Israeli Air Force during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. 
And he has an extensive Wikipedia page, so if you're so inclined, check that out. But the thing that really got me was that his photo is basically an old-timey picture of Pee Wee Herman in military dress. So that's very funny to me. He looks just like Pee Wee Herman. And Paul was the eldest of two siblings. His sister Abby is, or at least was, an attorney who at one time served as the legal director of the Lambda Legal Defense and Educational Fund, which is a national gay and lesbian civil rights organization, very active in fighting discrimination against AIDS victims. And Paul's brother, Luke, um, sort of on the other side of the... uh, cultural spectrum professional spectrum i'm not sure which uh, civil rights trained doberman pinchers uh preparing them for what has been referred to as a black belt in karate for dogs which i am choosing to read as training doberman for dog fighting yeah is that i don't know what that means it's you gotta know. be like private security right oh yeah no maybe that's true you're right you're right none of this is especially relevant when it comes to peewee but i just found it all interesting Now, there are a few key moments of Paul Rubin's childhood that point the way towards Pee-wee and all that would follow. The first of these occurred when Paul appeared as part of the studio audience for Howdy Doody, arguably the most famous children's show of the 50s, uh, which traumatized the whole generation with its truly horrific titular puppet. Have you seen, are you familiar with Howdy Doody? I am. But I was going to say. That puppet is horrifying. I was going to say, do you think the clown that he chains his bike to is supposed to be Bozo? Because that's like the other big 50s. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. TV clown. That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. That's like when people are archetypal. I think that's what Pennywise is partially based on. Oh, really? I believe so. So is Bozo like the original like creepy clown? I'm so glad you asked. A lot of the like <laughs> archetypal like sad clown, like the big like exaggerated. Pagliacci. Yeah, like, some of that comes from Commedia dell'arte, some of that comes from, like, vaudeville, like, or in, like, the tramp characters, like, the beat-up, sad-looking clowns. But, yeah, let's call it Bozo. Let's say, let's well, say it's Bozo. Well, I will say, Howdy Doody had Clarabelle the clown. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I forgot about Clarabelle. until the last episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think clowns should be seen and not heard. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, young Paul Rubens was selected to be part of Howdy Doody's famous peanut gallery. Racist! <laughs> uh, group of kids, the you know, sort of sort of audience of the show. Sadly, there are no pictures of young Paul Rubens, young Pee Wee, should I say, shaking hands with Buffalo Bill, the host of Howdy Doody. Sort of like that photo of Bill Clinton meeting JFK as a teen and shaking, shaking his hand. Uh, no photos like that exist. Uh, in fact, the whole experience of going to the Howdy Doody taping left Paul underwhelmed. He said, I remember sitting there thinking, well, where the hell's Howdy Doody? You couldn't see anything. It was all the cameras and lights and junk in the way. Nobody looked like they looked on TV. It was all really very frightening. So that was kind of a bummer, but definitely a formative moment. Another defining incident occurred when Paul and his family moved to Sarasota, Florida to, checks notes, run a lamp store. (laughs) Not only was Sarasota, which uh, is apparently somewhat of an artsy enclave of Florida, which I wasn't aware of, it was home to the Ringling Brothers Circus, but also the Rubenfeld's new neighbors were reportedly the Great Walendas, who are kind of the American first family of high wire acts. Um, this was presumably around the time that one of the members, it was a very big family, Yetta, fell to her death during a performance in 1963. The only reason I know this was because they made a reference to it in an episode of Mad Men when Roger Sterling says during a meeting that someone took a Yetta Walenda-sized misstep last week. And then when everyone looks at him blankly, 
He explains that they got her off the sidewalk with a hose last week. Roger Sterling, ladies and gentlemen. And also, the Rubenfelds lived near another circus family who made a living by getting shot out of cannons. So I have to believe that all of this American performance kitsch and creepy clown stuff must have contributed to the wacky inner life that would birth Pee Wee Herman. Paul Rubens began his theatrical career in 1963 when his parents showed him a newspaper ad for a local audition. And he apparently had expressed showbiz ambitions to the point where, at age five, I read, he asked his dad to build him a stage at home where he could perform with his brother and sister. He was a big I Love Lucy fan, which I guess concerned his teachers to no end. I guess, like, being that into Lucy at that time was seen as something of a character flaw or something that would get you sent to the guidance counselor. So that's weird. I mean, and now. Arguably more so now. <laughs> so I imagine these Lucy sketches were things that were performed on this homemade stage. But his parents were like, all right, enough of this. We got to cure him of this, this performance bug. So they hoped that he would audition for this show, get his dreams crushed, and then get the theater bug out of his system. Parenting in the early 60s. <laughs> but then, 11-year-old Paul got the part. It was a play called A Thousand Clowns, appropriately enough. And the rest, as Paul himself would say, was history. He was named thespian president of his high school and accepted into Northeastern University's summer program for gifted students and spent a lot of his free time in Sarasota acting in local plays. And it's important to add at this point that this guy was no joke when it came to acting. Many who knew him in his early days felt sad that he was always shackled to this Pee Wee Herman role because it eclipsed his talent for versatility. And Paul moved to California for college where he supplemented his meager acting work with odd jobs like waiting at restaurants and working as a door-to-door fuller brush salesman, which apparently was uh, a fairly popular job for wannabe showbiz people. He followed on the footsteps of luminaries like Dennis Quaid, Dick Clark, the Reverend Billy Graham, and Jack Nicholson. They all worked as fuller brush salesmen. And Paul gained his first national exposure in 1977 with the first of 14 guest appearances on The Gong Show. For those of you not familiar with The Gong Show, it's basically America's Got Talent with somehow even less talent. Uh, And Paul performed as part of a double act called The Hilarious Betty and Eddie. That do anything for you? (laughs) That'll all keep the little SOBs happy. (laughs) What's a fuller brush? I looked it up. I couldn't find a picture of it. I think it's just like a brand of brushes. Did they like go through a lot more brushes back then? Because the housewives were all on Dexy and like manicure <laughs> cleaning before their husband came home already drunk. You know, I thought it was a, a chimney sweep brush, which just goes to show. I was thinking of like Dick Van Dyke dancing around on rooftops and oh, stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that tracks. Stay tuned for TMI, the fuller brush. So it was around the time in 1977 that... Rubens first debuted an embryonic version of Pee Wee Herman, a descriptor that truly sends chills down my spine. <laughs> like the alien, like, like the chest burster. It's covered alien. in goo. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, He was performing as a member of the famous L.A. improv troupe known as the Groundlings. Uh, Basically, the two... Well, I guess there's UCB now. There's like three famed improv groups in the U.S., right? It's Upright Citizens Brigade, Second City... 
and the Groundlings. So they're the West Coast-based one, and some of their alumni include Kristen Wiig, Lisa Kudrow, Maya Rudolph, Kathy Griffin, John Lovitz, Lorraine Newman, Sherry O'Terry, Will Ferrell, Chris Kattan, Chris Parnell, Melissa McCarthy, Julia Sweeney, Cheryl Hines, Anna Gasteyer, Mindy Sterling, Pat, Oscar-winning... <laughs> Pat Nori, <laughs> he won an Oscar. What's that? Oscar nominated. Mr. Miyagi. Oh, Mr. Miyagi. Wow. What he? What was he nominated for an Oscar for? Karate Kid. Karate Kid. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Pat Noriyuki. Noriyuki. Pat Norita. Well, I'll be damned. Also honored on Happy Days. <laughs> yes. And Captain Sam from Mash. Oh yeah. Wow. He really is quite the intersection of so many of my interests. <laughs> Uh, and Phil Hartman, lest we forget, and John Paragon, or the, surely at the bottom of the, all those people I named, and Jan Hooks. Who's John Paragon? Oh, Jan Hooks is great. John Paragon is Jambi in um, oh. Pee-wee's Playhouse. Hell of a, hell of a CV. Uh, during his time with the Groundlings, Rubens created a less remembered character called Chief Jay Longtoe, who's a Native American lounge singer. Who drank and danced in the classic ballet on point stance in big white sneaker. That wouldn't fly today. Uh, and didn't back then, I guess. <laughs> he recalled that with uh, embarrassment throughout the rest of his life. Uh, more fondly remembered is the character he created at the Groundlings called Pee Wee Herman. According to Rubens, Pee Wee just, quote, came about from an extended improv at the Groundlings. We were given an assignment to come up with a character that one might encounter in a comedy club. He was intended to be a really bad comic. Someone you would look at and go, this guy's never going to make it. Was that tweet I saw? You, like, that I think I brought it up in a different episode that was like, you used to be able to make an entire movie about the premise. What if a guy was annoying <laughs> to be around? <laughs> you, me, and Dupree. Cable guy. What about Bob? Yeah, uh -huh. it's better when they edge on the psychotic. I'm, I'm thinking of like... I'm thinking of, yeah, I mean, what, but, but this character to me doesn't scan as a stand-up comic at all. No, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on this a little later, but uh, he, there was an early version, I think the first movie that Pee Wee Herman was ever in the character was in was a Cheech and Chong yeah. movie, and you, he comes on stage and starts trying to do stand-up stuff. I mean, it, it's very telling that this comes, I think, fairly soon after Andy Kaufman's foreign man character who was would come on stage and try to be a stand-up comedian who was terrible at it. So in a way, it's almost like you you can kind of draw a line, I think, between the two. And they would have been in the same circles in, in Hollywood at the same time anyway, too. Yeah, everyone was chasing the Andy Kaufman making it onto taxi arc. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just by being annoying, right? <laughs> being annoying and bad at stand-up. According to Rubens, the character arrived fairly fully formed. Nice alliteration there, Jordan. He Thank told you. Vanity Fair in 1999, I sort of flipped a switch and the character came out. Then admitting, you'd think in 20 years I'd have a better story. <laughs> uh, which is strange considering how, what is it, uh, Who Athena who sprang fully grown from <laughs> Zeus's head. <laughs> little Greek, uh, little Greek legend n n drop for you there. Your, your knowledge base from, from the finer points of 50s children's television <laughs> to Greek mythology, I, I really I do bow to you. It's hell inside my head. Um, <laughs> the character's many distinctive traits were uh, just a bunch of stuff that Rubens threw together, he said. He denied that French cartoon characters Tintin and Pinocchio were uh, influences. 
I don't see where Pinocchio comes in to that. He, I it, get. I mean, Tintin. I think it's just the shape of his face. It's like the way he, he has like his high cheekbones, which mm. he then rouges to make them seem even more pronounced, and his very like what's the word like aquiline nose. Oh, like sure, very, sure, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, perhaps the most distinctive element of Pee Wee Herman is, of course, his voice and trademark braying two note laugh. Uh, Can you do it? No, I'm not. I'm not doing that. I because the second I I knew we were doing this, I immediately flashed back to like I love the '80s where they just did like yeah. a quick montage of everyone yep. doing the Pee Wee laugh, and I was like, nope, I'm not debasing myself that way. Um, writer T. Gertler. <laughs> That's it. Well, f- that guy. Writer T. Gertler <laughs> described it, uh, the voice in a 1987 Rolling Stone profile as sounding quote like a blender with sinus problems. Whining at high speed through taco dip. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's accurate. The voice dated back to 1970 when Rubens was performing in a play called Life with Father. Cast as the most annoying character in the show, he developed a suitably annoying manner of speaking, explaining it to the New Yorker. After three months with the show, I had this cartoon voice. It was further proof I was a bad actor. (laughs) He's funny in interviews. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I never doubted that. I, uh, yeah. Uh... His iconic gray-checked suit was a loner from the Groundlings director and co-founder Gary Austin, which Paul simply never returned to him. (laughs) Uh, And then someone gave him a child's black bow tie, which he swapped for a red bow tie. Uh, And he says the white shoes were mine. That's just sort of what I put on and I had success with it. So I thought, why mess with it if it ain't broke? The fact that the suit was several sizes too small became part of the look, but Paul's grandmother, of all people, was not a fan. The first time she saw Paul during one of his many appearances on the Dave Letterman show, she called Paul's mom and said, I don't care what you say. I'm going to buy that boy a suit that fits him. I don't want to see him again on I don't want to see him on television again in a suit that doesn't fit him. Uh, it was difficult for him to keep in the suit, and I watching the clips of the movie. I think it's so funny that he goes to weigh himself and he comes yeah. in at 98 pounds, the archetypal 98-pound weakling, right? Oh, my God. I, I never put that together. That's the, the Charles Atlas, like, back of the magazine yeah. ad. Yeah. yeah. It's getting uh, sand kicked in his face. Absolutely. Um, a number of people said that this wasn't difficult for him, though, keeping that at, uh, keeping it at weight. And the 1987 Rolling Stone profile uh, talks about a good number of people who mentioned how... Uh, hot he was out of peewee and that he had a great body weird yeah especially when like he's yeah what's everybody's in, let's let's take question let's take an audience participation <laughs> what age is peewee <laughs> that uh, that is okay we gotta we gotta talk about this because he was very vague when asked about this or speaking about this rather in ew in 2006 he said to me there's a conceptual aspect to peewee if you thought Pee-wee was a kid, fine. If you thought Pee-wee was a man who was trying to be a kid, great. If you thought Pee-wee was developmentally challenged, fine. Whatever. <laughs> and he would also add in an interview with Rolling Stone, when I look at some of what I do, I go, boy, a therapist would have a field day. And then laughed a lot. Yeah. I. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, it does seem to exist in this like heightened childhood world. Um, but like everybody's an adult. The concept of a job is not alien to him, but he doesn't have one. The rich kid that is his nemesis is like a like a middle aged fat guy, but sweet sweet Dottie, like he recognizes what like romantic lust is not like confusing to him, right? 
What are we to make of this? This is like the Orson Welles voice. What are we to make of this Pee Wee Herman? Is he a man? Uh, but what of the name? Rubens told Rolling Stone in 2016 that it was born of two childhood memories. The name Herman came from a kid I knew who was kind of off the wall. The name Pee Wee came from a little harmonica I had that said Pee Wee on it. I loved the idea of a nickname because it sounded so real to me. Pee Wee Herman sounds like a name that is so odd. How would you make that up? If you were going to make up a name, you'd make up a better name. It seemed real to me. It was a nickname with a last name that's also a first name. And it went hand in hand with what I wanted to do, which was to make people think that this was a real person, not an actor. And we'll talk in the next episode about the great lengths that Paul Rubens went to to preserve this illusion that Pee Wee Herman was a real person. And it, it got pretty obsessive. I mean, it, it transcended performance art into something that almost seems unhealthy, in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, you know, this next bit really socks that to him, right? Like, the fact that you would could in 1979... Well, okay, let me... I'm getting ahead of myself. For all the bar trivia points, the character oh, yeah. of Pee Wee Herman actually debuted on The Dating Game in 1979. Um, the first of his three appearances as Pee Wee, not Paul Rubens... Uh, he told Interview Magazine later, that was a little test experiment that I was doing early on. I went to a cattle call audition for the dating game, and before I even got home, they called me back. And despite going on the show as Pee Wee, he won. <laughs> One of the three times, I should say. Okay. One of the three times. Not a defending champ. No, was the no, Ken no. Jennings of, of, of the dating game. <laughs> uh, dating game was a weirdly easy paycheck for like wannabe actors. In, in the 60s and 70s, you could see people like uh, Steve Martin... Uh, Tom Selleck, John Ritter, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bob Saget, Michael Richards, Brian Cranston, George Foreman, also in Andy Kaufman uh, appears. This is all through the 60s and 70s. Andy Kaufman uh, also appears in character under the name Baji Kimran. God, he truly got no shortage of mileage out of what if a guy wasn't from the United States, didn't he? <laughs> um, <clears throat> Paul Hart or Phil Hartman was also on there. Farrah Fawcett and Suzanne Somers. Wacky time. Wacky, wacky time in Hollywood. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union at 52 5% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity is designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. 
In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Pee-wee makes the jump from the small screen to the big screen in the 80s with Cheech and Chong's next movie, in which he plays a rude hotel clerk who swears at the police and ends up getting arrested. But in the midst of the movie, he does a turn in character as a failing comedian who is essentially Pee-wee Herman. Now, I haven't seen this movie, so I'm unclear if it's meant to be two different characters, this rude hotel clerk and this failing comedian. I don't know. I'm confused. But the stand-up comes on stage and introduces himself as Pee-wee. So. Rubens made other non-Pee-wee appearances during this time, including a small part as a waiter in the Blues Brothers. Another bit part in Meatballs 2, uh, an appearance as Dickie Nimitz. In a 1981 episode of Mork and Mindy. I just wanted to get you to say Dickie Nimitz. I'm sorry. <laughs> In the Orson Welles voice. Yeah. Dickie Nimitz. What of this? Dickie Nimitz. Uh, he was also a prolific voice actor around this time. He did the <laughs> provided the voice of Freaky Frankenstone on the Flintstones <laughs> comedy show spinoff. Uh, he did the voice of a robot called Rex at the Star Tours ride in Disneyland. The voice of the robotic spaceship Commander Max in the 1986 Disney live-action movie, The Flight of the Navigator. Do you remember that movie? Uh, I know, but I know it's like a cult hit. It's a good movie. You would like like it now, I feel like. I watched all of Ice Pirates at a bar once. That's a great movie. You ever see that? No. Really weird. Really, really weird. Is that a Disney movie? No, it was like a Star Wars, attempted Star Wars oh. knockoff cash-in. Uh, Pee-wee Herman received a boost following Paul's biggest professional failure to date, which is a nice silver lining. Uh, 1980, he uh, Rubens auditioned for a spot on Saturday Night Live. Um, intimidated, hilariously, from the moment that he walked into the room and saw Gilbert Gottfried. Who among us? I'm just him. You know that bit in Walkard where he's like watching the Big Bopper from the wings, and he's like, "Hello, this is the Big Bopper calling," and they just cut to how Dewey are we gonna follow that? How yeah? How are we gonna follow that? Like, you imagine you walk in and Gilbert Gottfried's doing that f-ing obnoxious voice, and you're like, Shit, "They already got a voice guy. I'm can I'm screwed." That's pretty much what he said. Yeah, as he later told EW, I walked in the room, saw him, and said, it's not going to be both of us. We're the same type of performer. I knew then I wasn't going to get it. But by his own account, the audition went pretty well. He told Paper Magazine, the producers were pulling me aside going, you should get an apartment right away. You're definitely in. And I didn't get it. I left there so devastated and freaked out that I was going to go from an up-and-comer to a never-been. He also told the San Francisco Chronicle that he believed the, quote, fix was in because Gottfried was friends with one of the producers. But in hindsight, Rubens dodged a bullet. 1980 was the year that SNL creator and executive producer Lorne Michaels temporarily quit the show, which was then placed in the hands of producer Gene Dumanian. 
She oversaw what is widely agreed to be the least funny stretch of the show's history, and she was promptly fired mid-season. Uh, an incident supposedly spurred on after cast member Charles Rocket dropped an F-bomb live on the air in a Who Shot JR parody. The network proceeded to use that as an excuse to clean house, firing both Dumanian and the entire cast, save for Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. Ah, Joe Piscopo. <laughs> Wither Joe Piscopo. <laughs> so Gilbert's SNL career was over after just 12 episodes. Paul Rubens avoided this fate, but he was still pretty bummed about getting passed over at SNL. So showing unusual verve and self-determination, Paul decided to stage his own show to act as a vehicle for his Pee Wee Herman character. He would recall, I remember being at a payphone at LAX, calling my parents and saying, I need to borrow some money. I'm going to produce a show. They loaned me $3,000, which turned into $5,000. And about a week and a half later, I had 20 to 30 people working for free. And we wrote the Pee Wee Herman show. He launched the show at the Groundlings Theater on February 7th, 1981. And premiering at midnight, it became the group's first alternative theater piece. The warm reception led to it being moved to the bigger and more prestigious Roxy Theater on the Sunset Strip, where it ran for five very successful months. Now, this stage shows a reputation of being a little more risque than the Pee Wee we know and love. And there are bits like, I think there's a bit of him affixing mirrors to his wingtip shoes to use to look up girls' skirts and things like that. But there are also matinee shows for kids in addition to the late night showings for adults. So it was... Not that far off from uh, the Playhouse. The show gained the attention of executives at a very new network called HBO, who filmed one of the Roxy performances for an early special, which brought him nationwide exposure, as did a number of guest spots on The David Letterman Show. Letterman was always a friend to freaks with alter egos. Again, see Andy Kaufman. That's where he had his famous face-off with wrestler Jerry Lawler. And uh, the character actor DeForest Calvert, I think his name, played the character Bud Melman, was a very frequent guest on early Letterman shows. No? Nope. Okay. Who's the other DeForest? Why is DeForest such a popular name? DeForest Kelly. Yeah. Bones McCoy on Star Trek. There's a lot defensive lineman right now named DeForest Buckner. I got it backwards. It was Calvert DeForest played Bud Melman. Ah, you just spoiled my whole bit. Oh, I'm sorry. Defor guys named DeForest. <laughs> you. Can <laughs> do a type five on DeForest. <laughs> we got any DeForest in here? <laughs> this guy. This guy's a yeah. DeForest. <laughs> that, you'll get that one on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> the Pee Wee Herman show introduced many of the characters who would become familiar to fans of Pee Wee's Playhouse, including Miss Yvonne, Captain Carl, Jambi, Terry, and Clocky. <laughs> Who could forget Clocky? Sweet, sweet, dear Clocky. <laughs> Most of these characters were played by Paul's groundling friends. Miss Yvonne, famous to viewers as the most beautiful woman in puppet land, was played by Lynn Marie Stewart, who based her performance on an early love of Sandra D and Marilyn Monroe. Just adding the supersized dose of kitsch in this episode. And Jambi the Genie, was played by John Paragon, who we mentioned earlier, whose trademark, I can never say this, Mekaleka High, Mekahaini Ho chant dates back to his days as a groundling. Was that one also racist? 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he uh, he said on the special features for Pee Wee's Big Adventure, we were doing a sketch at the Groundlings, and it was customers in a Hawaiian restaurant, and I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt and doing Hawaiian gibberish. So that's where that came from. It was supposed to be bad Hawaiian. And in our second Frank Zappa reference in three episodes, John Paragon would later say the Heine part of the chant came from listening to Frank Zappa records, where it features prominently. It's such a funny word, he added. <laughs> Heigl, your thoughts? <laughs> All of that. <laughs> Everything you just said <laughs> made me so mad. Uh, the name Jambi supposedly came from a favorite sandwich shop on Hollywood Boulevard. Do you like Frank Zappa? Um, no. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, l allow me to quote what you said when you referenced Frank Zappa <laughs> right. on our last episode. There's nothing wrong with a little Frank Zappa, but there's a lot wrong with a lot of Frank Zappa. Yeah, all the scatological stuff just completely lost me. There's yeah. so much, like, the only, the only time I've ever found him funny is actually um, Camarillo Brio. She wore Camarillo Brio. Uh, but it's just, he has this, uh, this like, his spoken word, like, uh, pardon, he's like, Say, is that a Mexican poncho or is that a, a Sears poncho? Hmm. No fooling. <laughs> like, that's the funniest he ever did to me. All that, like, pee-pee poo-poo stuff. I'm like, what the f*** is wrong with you? Like, grow up, man. Come on. You can't be, like, name-dropping Edgar Varese in, like, your interviews. <laughs> and, like, making heinously difficult polyrhythmic and 12-tone music and then be like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> just, I mean, you can. He did. What the f*** do I know? But I'm just like, ah. Uh. Like, Primus. Like, Jesus. It's not embarrassing enough you guys play funk rock. Like, you have to be into, <laughs> you know, like, Winona's Big Brown Beaver. Like, Ugh. Idiots. <laughs> I hate everything. <laughs> well, here's another band you probably don't like. Tool. <laughs> Tool have a song named in honor of Jambi the Genie. And they would. <laughs> Just what I'll say to that. Well, as a palate cleanser, we have to talk about the true MVP of Pee Wee Herman's development. My beloved Phil Hartman. I love Phil Hartman. What mm -hmm. right-thinking person doesn't love Phil Hartman? In addition to playing the part of the gruff Captain Carl, and I believe also Monsieur LeCroc in the Pee Wee Herman show, the HBO special, Phil Hartman also played a major role in developing the character and co-writing many of the sketches and ultimately the Pee Wee's Big Adventure movie. Phil Hartman and Paul Rubin's first cross paths at the Groundlings Theater, where Phil was the undisputed star. I think I mentioned this in, it must have been the Brave Little Toaster episode, but prior to Phil's career in comedy, he worked as a graphic designer, producing album covers for 70s sort of Laurel Canyon-centric bands like America and Poco. And he also designed the logo for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So he's a very talented man. Uh, according to an interview given years later, Paul said that he and Phil Hartman teamed up and were going out to rule the world. They were thick as thieves. They made appearances together in the Cheech and Chong movie. And I would have to assume that one got the other a gig on um, on the dating game, because they were both on the dating game show around the same time. Uh, when movie offers came their way for Pee-wee's Big Adventure, they collaborated on the script. And Phil took a small cameo as a reporter at the end of the movie, but the film drastically altered the course of his life. 
He was 36 years old and considering quitting acting. He just thought it was going to happen for him. But the success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure changed his mind. And Paul's also said that he's the one who introduced Phil to SNL producer Lorne Michaels when he, as Pee-wee, was hosting the show in 1985, thus paving the way for Phil's lengthy career the following year in 1986. And that same year, 1986, was the first season of Pee-wee's Playhouse, in which Hartman reprised his role as Captain Carl, but he left the show by the second season due to rumored bad blood between him and Paul. Now, the reasons for this are disputed. It's been generally described as a creative disagreement, which could mean any number of things. Paul made it sound like Phil objected to the all-consuming nature of Pee-wee Herman, you know, the whole idea of making him seem like a real person. Paul later said, I like the idea of becoming Pee-wee and letting the public think Pee-wee was a real person. Phil was very frustrated by that. He thought I was dot, 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 uh, dot, 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 squandering my talent. This is him speaking to the website Westward. Hmm. He always loved Pee-wee Herman, but he used to give me a hard time originally about focusing on this instead of doing all my other characters, which makes sense. You think of Phil Hartman's career and he was a chameleon. He, he, he had... I could be wrong, but I think for a time he might have held the record for the most impressions done on SNL. Hmm. I think that Daryl Hammond beat him. But uh, yeah, I mean, he was their utility guy for so long. So you can see how, you know, Paul getting roped into doing this one character was really anathema to him. Uh, however, there are also some who believe that Paul felt abandoned when Phil Hartman joined SNL, the comedy institution that had turned its back on him and directly led him to create Pee Wee as his own star-making vehicle. Some felt that this resentment was the true cause of their creative split. On the other hand, there are some who claim that Phil was resentful for his own reasons, like thinking that he should have received more credit for the development of Pee-wee or more money for the script writing for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Whatever the case, the two didn't speak for years after he left Pee-wee's Playhouse, but reportedly they were on decent terms by the time of Phil's murder in May 1998. Paul would later say, I think about Phil all the time. So all of this is a huge bummer, but <laughs> it leads us to discussing Pee-wee Herman's true breakthrough, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Michael, take us there. Following the success of the Pee-wee Herman show on HBO and at gigs across the country, including a sold-out gig at Carnegie Hall in 1984, plus a bunch of well-received appearances on Letterman, the hosting spot in SNL, Warner Brothers approached Rubens with the idea of making a Pee-wee movie. Didn't seem like a good idea to the rest of the industry. Uh, as Rubens told the AV Club in 2006, when we announced we were working on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, people said, I don't get it. I don't see how it's a movie. It seems like a David Letterman sort of thing. I can't tell who that's yeah. a diss on. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, not wrong. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but nevertheless, they persisted. Hashtag the resistance. Uh, hashtag Ruth Conda forever. <laughs> and together with Phil Hartman and writer Michael Vorhall, which sounds like how Dracula would pronounce Andy Warhol's name. <laughs> that's a groundling. That's, that's so much better than the joke I was going to make. That's a groundling. Andy Warhol in a Groucho mask. That's a, that's a gr uh, groundlings bit. <laughs> Dracula interviewing Andy Warhol at Interview Magazine at the factory interviewing Dracula. Go. 
And then, I was going to do Dracula doing a screen test at the studio or at the factory. Oh, but he like doesn't show up because vampires can't see their reflections. And, and Andy's oh, like, this is great. I need more. I need more. Yeah. And he's like, Mr. Vorhol. <laughs> I do not understand. <laughs> wow, we are just killing it today. Uh, just riffing. Just just welcome to TMI. All riffs edition. All riffs. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can't stop thinking about <laughs> Bella Lugosi doing a factory screen test. <laughs> like heroin addicted <laughs> mid-50s Bella Lugosi when he's all checked out doing Ed Wood movies. Uh, hmm. The original idea was for the film to be a remake of the 1960 Haley Mills movie Pollyanna, which Rubens once claimed was his favorite film. Uh, cons- <laughs> from, from factory screen test to Pollyanna in one move, <laughs> that is the TMI promise. Considering that Pollyanna has become a synonym for naive, saccharine, and annoying, it does seem like the correct vehicle for Pee-wee. But this idea ultimately fell by the wayside midway through the writing when he noticed that everyone on the Warner Brothers lot seemed to have a bike with them. According to the version that you heard, uh, Paul asked a studio exec when he would get his. And he, this exec, responded by presenting Peavy with a garish 1940s Schwinn. Not unlike the one scene in the movie. And this uh, supposedly gave him the idea for the stolen bike road trip plot line. We should have used this as uh, a proposed movie, a road trip movie for Britney Spears to do instead of Crossroads when we were going through our, uh, you know, road trip <laughs> movies Britney could have acted in. You know, she's loopy enough now that you could probably pitch her doing Paul like like Pee-wee and she would do it on her Instagram for free. I feel like she's dressed as Pee-wee before. Really? Yeah. I swear I remember seeing this. Okay. Not coming up. Yeah, at that all. feels like a Mandela effect thing for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very <laughs> uniquely me. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to get in my head. So that idea is itself uh, borrowed from classic cinema, although considerably more highbrow uh, influence than Pollyanna. Um, it's been loosely described as a parody of the 1948 Italian cinema classic, The Bicycle Thief, uh, a film thumbnail I have scrolled past so many times on my way to watch Bloodsport again. Um. <laughs> is that the movie that Trump would watch on planes and then yes. have Eric fast forward that through is, all the speaking that parts? That is correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, tremendous film. One of the best. Many people are saying it more and more often these days. <laughs> um, but <laughs> it's okay. You don't need to. You don't need to use other people as a crutch in your love for blood sport. You could just. You could just recommend it. Blood sports. Like, Oh man. Me and Trump love Bloodsport. We do. That's really the thing that binds us. Um and our love of trucks. Does he love trucks? <laughs> yeah, don't you remember when he was in that the the pic of him in the big truck and the quote from that was an, an NPR reporter cited was like the closest I've ever felt to Trump in my life. <laughs> at a rally in Allentown, PA. By the way, nice trucks. You think I could hop into one of them and drive it away? I'd love to do it. Just drive the hell out of here. Just get the <laughs> hell out of this. I had such a good life. My life was great. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow, that that touches me. I know. Right? <laughs> Just get the That's hell out of here. We should all go out. <laughs> um anyway, 
Uh, there is an onto Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo in a scene where the wheels are seen spinning behind Pee Wee's head. Uh, it is possible that Paul Rubens and the co-writers watched a bunch of these classic movies for inspiration since they were, by their own admission, complete rookies. Rubens would later confess, we didn't really know what we were doing at that point. We'd both written stuff, but it was mostly just improvising. Sitting down and consciously writing something is very different than improvising. To help, they purchased the Screenwriting Bible, appropriately titled Screenplay, The Foundations of Screenwriting, by Sid Screenwriter Field, <laughs> and worked literally by the book. Paul would say, it's a 90-minute film, it's a 90-page script. Uh, short, by the way. Was it, screenplays are like, what, it's supposed to be like a 120? Yeah, 100, 110, 110, 120, uh. yeah. On page 30, I lose my bike. On page 60, I find it. It's literally exactly what they said to do in the book. There should be like a MacGuffin kind of thing, something you're looking for. And I was like, okay, my bike. <laughs> Fair. Um, the bike in question was built by Pedal Pusher Bike Shop of Newport Beach, California. They assembled 10 of the vintage-looking bikes for the movie, which they apparently did not have much faith in. Uh, the movie, not the bike. They were presented with two options for payment, 10 grand in cash or slightly less cash and a screen credit. They opted for the cash and chose poorly. One of these original bikes was put up for auction in 2014. It's expected to sell for fifteen grand, but ultimately pulled in $36,000. Another was on display at the Carnegie Science Center in Pittsburgh for a time. How wound up there. It's a great bike. Yeah. The reason I first watched this movie was I, um, I was never a very strong bike rider as a kid. I grew up, uh, we had a 400-foot driveway that sloped down at a 90-degree angle, or sorry, 45-degree angle, and ended in a 12-foot sheer cliff into a lake. And so that I, I didn't really, I couldn't really ride bikes yeah. around my house, so I didn't really have anywhere to go. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, as I was like maybe like 10 or 11, I was kind of shaky on a bike, and one time I was at a friend's house, and I, I slammed on the brakes, and I flew over the handlebar and, and flew off my bike and, and I hurt my arm. And my friend that cheered me up wanted to put on Pee-wee's Big Adventure because of the scene when um, he gets on the motorcycle mm. and then rides off and then goes right through the uh, the billboard. Mm. He just thought that that reminded him of, he said that was exactly what you looked like when you fell off your bike. So, <laughs> um, so that was my first time I saw Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Great stuff. Good, great, great stuff. Thanks, thanks for being here. Did you see that uh, that New York Times review of books thing that went viral this week on Twitter for someone slamming it because it opened with this guy talking about when he was in college and someone was like, if you ever open a piece about reminiscing about the time you were in college, you owe, if your editor doesn't tell you to, it doesn't rip that to shreds, you need a new editor. I didn't see that, but that that's great fans, advice. Yeah. 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 We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Pee-wee's Big Adventure is famously the film that gave a 26-year-old Tim Burton his big directorial break. Given his age and lack of experience, he was a tough sell for Warner Brothers execs, who did not have Burton on their list of approved directors for the project. In fact, he probably had a bad name around Hollywood, considering he'd recently been fired by Disney for making Frankenweenie, a spooky short film shot in a expressionistic, moody black and white, which tells the story of a young dog. Or <laughs> Sort of. The dog was young, which tells the story of a young man who tries to revive his dog after it was run over by a car. Um, You may remember from our Beetlejuice episode that Tim Burton uh, matriculated through the ranks at the Disney Animation Studio. Um, Tremendously talented artist. Uh, Didn't he write them a letter or is that someone else? I'm confused. Fact check that. I don't think that's right now that I said it, but point remains is Tim Burton was like a he was Disney apprentice he worked on like Fox and the Hound and stuff but then he when he finally was given enough clout and made this dog Frankenstein movie starring your beloved Shelley Duvall insert super cut of her going hi I'm Shelley Duvall <laughs> I know yes hello I'm Shelley Duvall um they were horrified and fired him um spent company resources on your dead dog project uh <laughs> but it had its fans at least in Paul Rubin's social circle of weirdo L.A. comics. One night at a party, presumably bemoaning the list of approved directors that the studio had furnished him, several people recommended that Rubens check out Tim Burton. As he recalled to Ain't It Cool News, <laughs> Wither Ain't It Cool News, I screened Frankenweenie and I spoke to Shelley Duvall, who is a friend of mine who was in Frankenweenie. How the f*** did that happen? Oh, to be a fly on that wall. I knew Tim was the director for my film about 15 seconds into Frankenweenie, like the second or third shot of it. I was looking at the wallpaper in this bedroom and the lighting and just going, this is the guy who has style and understands art direction. Those were two really important things for me and my baby, I guess. And you know, it just happened to luckily all work out. Paul reportedly refused to even proceed with the film unless the studio brought on Tim Burton. Uh, Eventually, the studio relented, sowing the seeds for this man to... (laughs) 
that's, that's your editorializing. This is what happens when I don't read ahead. Jordan wrote, eventually they relented, sowing the seeds for this man to ruin countless pieces of our childhood with his quirky remakes. I don't disagree. But Paul Rubens didn't see it that way. It was the biggest piece of luck early on in my career I could have had, he later said. Burton would thank Rubens by casting him in several of his future films, including a bit part in Beetlejuice and in his Batman Returns film as the Penguin's father, Mr. Cobblepot. Also, uh, the woman who plays Simone is the mom. It's two Pee-wee's people. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tim Burton brought his quirky eye to an already quirky project. Years earlier, he'd seen 150-foot dinosaur statues, part of a roadside attraction in the unincorporated California community of Cabazon, and always dreamed of putting them into a film. He would have his chance while making Pee-wee's big adventure. And, following Ruben's death, the T-Rex was painted, so that it appeared he was wearing Pee-wee's iconic suit. Burton also made a cameo in Pee-wee's Big Adventure as the thug who accosts Pee-wee just before he enters the fortune teller's studio. Well, unfortunately, discussing this film means we have to talk about one of the most traumatizing figures in millennial <laughs> movie history, Large Marge. But don't take my word for it. IFC lists Large Marge as number five on their list of the 25 scariest moments in non-horror movies. It was beat by the Nikki Santoro in the cornfield scene from Casino, the tunnel boat ride scene from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That makes a lot of sense. The, there's no way of knowing. That shit's insane. Yeah, that's a very Pee Wee Herman-esque. Wonka and Pee Wee seem to be cut from the same cloth. It does have a chicken being decapitated, though, which is further yeah. than any of this, these movies ever went. And some kind of worm, like, walking across a woman's lips. Oh, God. Yeah, I hate that. Uh, also, the horrific ending montage from Requiem for a Dream. And I think number one was the eye slice from the Brunel salvador Dali joint, Un Chien Andalou. <laughs> Classic eye slicing movie. As you know, the, the hook of uh, the Pixies debaser. Oh, yeah. Slicing up eyeballs, I want you to know. This might be our most, like, reference-rich episode ever. Challenge accepted. Yeah, let's let's go for it. So for those of you who have repressed the memory of Large Marge, allow me to give you a little refresher. The scene depicts a hitchhiking peewee getting picked up by a trucker named Large Marge, whose eyes bulge out of her head as she terrifies peewee while telling a story. This eye-bulging effect was achieved by the Chiodo brothers, who were responsible for working out effects in movies like Elf, Team America World Police, and killer clowns from outer space. You, Rube. First of all, it's Kyoto's. Or Kyoto. Because they're Greek. What is? It's like yeah. Italian. It's like the Greek-Italian pronunciation. Ki, huh. ki, ki. Ma, ki bella. Um, yeah, they're incredible. Also, the Critters franchise. Oh. Um, yeah. I'm surprised they didn't do more for this movie, actually. Because they the killer clowns, uh, not a good movie, but like some truly incredible clowns in the titular roles. <laughs> well, they probably didn't do more because they couldn't afford it because apparently Tim Burton very nearly cut this scene. And when asked why, he said, well, you know, uh, it's a special effect and those are the first things to go. So mm. they probably didn't have a lot of budget to play around with things like this. Uh, although it terrifies me to this day, the Large Marge sequence does have a link to two things that are very near and dear to both of our hearts. First, the scene or at least what follows it after she drops Pee-wee off at a truck stop, is essentially the plot of the 1967 country song Phantom 39 by Red Sovine, which was later reworked by your beloved Tom Waits 
as Big Joe and Phantom 309 on his 1975 album Nighthawks at the Diner. Yeah, that's the faux live one. Spoken word. Oh yeah. yeah. No, it's 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 not. I mean, it's not my. It's not one of my favorites, but it does have uh, some great Tom one-liners. <laughs> Can you come to mind? Uh, yes, actually, immediately. I'm so damn horny. The crack of dawn better watch itself around me is a great one. Uh, has warm beer and cold women, which is just a punchline by itself, but like also a great song. Um, yeah. Great record. Nighthawks at the Diner. Check it out. So we got Tom Waits, and we also have my beloved Michael Caine. Large Marge, you'll notice as she's telling a story to Pee Wee, never blinks. <laughs> Much like Michael Caine, who doesn't believe in blinking when he's acting because it weakens him. Because it weakens him. Yes. I assumed that. Um, I assumed that her hair was a nod to Elsa Lancaster and or Lanchester and um, Bride of Frankenstein. She has that upswept, bouffant kind of situation. Mm, I uh, Paul Rubens went on. I think it was the newly disgraced Jimmy Fallon. To uh, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what he was promoting, and he. I guess he was being peppered with all these questions about the making of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. For some reason, Paul Rubens was like really being coy and didn't want to talk about any of the background of it. But he did admit, or at least said, that Large March's towering hair was based on boxing promoter Don King. Oh, I stand corrected. I, he, <laughs> wow. He might, but he might have just been being sarcastic to get Jimmy Fallon to stop asking him questions about <laughs> Pee-wee. So I, I'm not. Your mileage may vary. I haven't actually watched that clip. Wouldn't surprise me, though. This was like mid-80s, the height of Don King's ubiquity. Is he still alive? Great question. Yeah. Holy sh... 1931. That guy was born. Good God. I don't think I realized he was that old. There's a picture on his Wikipedia page with a rocket launcher. Yeah, that tracks. Charged with killing two men in incidents 13 years apart. Uh... <laughs> Justifiable homicide. 1959, King was shot a man in the back after spotting him trying to rob one of his gambling houses. The incident was ruled the justifiable homicide. Shooting him in the back? <laughs> oh. Mm -hmm. In 1967, King was convicted of voluntary manslaughter for stomping one of his employees to death. For this, he served three years and 11 months in prison. Three years and 11 months? Good lord. Don King. Who knew? He was a f***ing monster. Uh, probably everyone. Yeah. God, it just gets worse and worse when you go on. Yeah, I, I'm going to bookmark that for later. I had no <laughs> idea a lot of this. Well, um, Dottie. <laughs> We're going to Dottie now. Oh, sweet Elizabeth Daly. Yes, yes, yes. The character of Dottie, oh. Pee-wee's love interest? Question mark? Sure. Was played by Elizabeth Daly, a.k.a. E.G. Daly, who is most famous to me as the voice of Tommy Pickles in Rugrats, as well as Babe the Pig and one of the Powerpuff Girls. For the role of Dottie, the producers of the film considered Lori Laughlin, a.k.a. Aunt Becky from Full House, Laura Dern, Phoebe Cates, Leah Thompson, I could see that, and mm. Jennifer Jason Lee. Those are all fine. Yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the role went to Elizabeth Daly, and she and Paul Rubens didn't meet until the day she arrived on the set to shoot her scene. He's real gentle and sweet, she told The Hollywood Reporter. On the first day, I walked onto the set of Pee-wee's Kitchen, and I was like, this is really cool. 
She said that Paul, quote, has a really soft-spoken voice when he's not doing his peewee thing. Yeah, a lot of profiles on Paul Rubin's remark on his, like, dulcet tones when he's not peewee, um, which I guess would be on display probably best in the movie Blow. Mm. I'm going to have to say, yeah, I have to rewatch that. But that was kind of the other non-peewee thing that was making the rounds after he died was his, his part in Blow. But Paul and E.G. Daly remained close until the end of his life, although there was a tense moment that occurred during the scene where Pee-wee is wheeled out of a bike shop on a gurney. Elizabeth's face went white, and Paul couldn't figure out why. Apparently, the scene gave her flashbacks of her boyfriend, John Eric Hexum, an actor who accidentally shot and killed himself with a prop gun on the set of the TV show Cover Up in 1984 which would be a year before they shot this scene. Per Wikipedia, during a break between scenes on the set on Friday, October 12th, 1984, John Eric Hexum became bored with the filming delays. He began playing Russian roulette with what he believed was a harmless 44 Magnum prop gun and jokingly placed it to his temple and pulled the trigger. The shot sent the wadding from the blank cartridge into Hexum's skull, driving a bone fragment the size of a quarter into his brain and causing massive hemorrhaging. Hexum was rushed to the hospital, where he was declared brain dead nearly a week later. So... You didn't bring that one up on the Rugrats episode? <laughs> Can't imagine well, no. why. <laughs> well, this this, has, this directly related to Pee-wee, because she was looking at Pee-wee getting wheeled out on a stretcher a year later, and it freaked her out, gave her PTSD. <laughs> yeah. It's directly related. <laughs> so that's our, that's our take-home value for this episode, is please, folks, don't screw around with prop guns. Yeah, I mean, big, big year for prop guns, man. I mean, Alec Baldwin, they just got a new Crow remake going, landed a distributor. They did? It's done. It just landed, landed Lionsgate. Yeah, Bill Skarsgård. Skarsgård, one of the Swedes. The creepy Swede, not the stupid hot one. Okay. Yeah. Is the Crow the original? Yeah. Good? No. Okay. I mean, it's iconic, but it's not well, really good. He's like super yeah. hot in it and it's really yeah. gothy, but it's really not a good like action movie or kind of movie, period. Well directed, great soundtrack. Yeah. I remember seeing it as like a young teenager and Yeah, I mean that's how everyone saw it. You had like you right. like your goth crush talked about the crow, so you went and watched the crow. I literally dated a girl who that's had what like happened. lines of it like spray painted on her on her walls. Spray painted? Cool. Yeah. It was. That's, it was that's pretty metal. It was pretty cool. Wow. <laughs> uh, nice. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, now let us proceed to Pee Wee's grab bag. <laughs> I guess we can't really use the word grab in Pee Wee. Oh, in, uh, too soon. Yeah. Here's some odds and ends. My favorite factoids about this movie. The late Jan Hooks, the brilliant Jan Hooks, one of my favorite SNL veterans, a veteran of the Groundlings also, and a hundred episodes of SNL. She appears as the tour guide of the Alamo when Pee-Ree arrives in search of the basement, the non-existent basement. She apparently improvised her whole scene entirely on the spot. Love that. What a pro. Uh, in addition to bit parts by Phil Hartman and Tim Burton, which we touched on earlier, Pee-Wee's Big Adventure features cameos from James Brolin, Morgan Fairchild, D. Snyder and Milton Berle. <laughs> the first two, if not all four, I forget now, appear in the movie within a movie that plays at the drive-in. And that drive-in, called the Studio Drive-In and located in California's Culver City, is 
reported on some sites to be the one that's used in the movie Grease when John Travolta sings Sandy, you know, stranded at the drive-in. I've seen other sites claim that this isn't the case and the Grease scene was filmed at a spot in Burbank, I believe called Pickwick, the Pickwick Theater. In any event, the Pee Wee drive-in in Culver City was torn down in 1993 and the Grease one was demoed in 1989. So they are both gone. Uh, but furthering the Grease Pee Wee Herman connection, the 1988 Pee Wee sequel, Big Top Pee Wee, which we will not be discussing because uh, it just seems bad, uh, was directed by Grease director Randall Kleiser. I think a lot of the Big Top Pee Wee movie drew on um, some of the unused original premise for Pee Wee's Big Adventure, where it was going to be a Pollyanna remake, I think. I don't remember. I watched it like once when I was maybe like eight. Uh, the tequila dance. Yes, you know, the one with the thumbs. <laughs> um, I'm about to ruin it for you. It apparently originated from a dirty joke told by Paul's father. Uh, allow me to quote him. The joke was something that you put one thumb in your, and he's, he's gesticulating to his backside during this interview, and the other thumb in your mouth, and then you switch. I don't really want to know what that joke is. I'll probably cut this whole segment. What in the f Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, moving on. Oh, to only slightly more pleasant news. Corey Feldman. Oh, speaking of things uh, in buttholes. <laughs> <sighs> I felt bad after that one. <laughs> uh, Corey Feldman was reportedly offered the role of Francis Buxton. The, I think he's the bike. The actually haven't. Of no, he's the, shitty, he's the shitty rich kid next door. Yeah, he's like yeah, nemesis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he turned down the role, apparently due to scheduling conflicts with the Goonies. Paul Rubens supposedly visited the Goonies set once because both of the films were shooting on the same lot. And this is one of those IMDb trivia things that I can't really run down, but Feldman did say that the Goonies set boasted a tremendous number of celebrity guests. He told Empire, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was shooting across the lot, so Tim Burton and Paul Rubens would come over. Dan Aykroyd, too. Harrison Ford actually came and climbed around the caves with us at one point. That's awesome. Michael Jackson and his whole family were there quite a lot. It was happening, you know? One downside was, I became friends with Michael, and was wearing a Prince t-shirt every day. It would have been funnier if he just said, one downside was, I became friends with Michael. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Prince and Michael were big-time rivals in the 80s. A the story we've who, told five yes. times <laughs> I know. this podcast. Uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure marks the screen debut of Darla the Dog, who appears in an uncredited role as one of the pets escaping from the pet store fire. She's been featured in numerous films, including her role as Queenie in 1989's The Burbs, and most germane to our interests, as Precious the Dog in Silence of the Lambs. I don't know why I specified the dog. It's not like she's playing <laughs> Buffalo Bill. Precious the Human For in her Silence role of as the FBI Lambs. Director yeah. Jack yeah. Crawford. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the last in my Pee Wee grab bag. Some Batman nods for my dear friend Alex Heigl. Do you want to take this? It's Batman. You got to do this. Well, yeah, we already discussed how Tim Burton cast Paul Rubens in uh, Batman Returns as the Penguin's father. But there are several nods to the caped crusader in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Is the scene where uh, Pee-wee slides down the pole in his house, trans uh, changing instantaneously from PJs to his signature suit, much like Bruce Wayne would do. Uh, I think that's from the 60s show. 
Yeah, I don't yeah, think that's yeah, yeah. from the comics, but we, yeah, where they slide down the chutes in Wayne Manor and they're instantly transformed and uh, they're put in their Batman suits and and that's of a that like '60s Batman is of a of a piece with uh, you know this whole kitschy era deal. Are uh, you into? I can see you as not liking the '60s Batman. I grew up with it. My dad, we had a Did you? yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Biff, bam, pow, yeah. holy shark repellent bat spray. Batman, that's the best one. Send me the, give me the shark repellent bat spray. Yeah, it's great. It's just so good. It's so it makes me happy that you like that. I could see you not liking that. And it's funnier too when you know that they were like having crazy orgies together, like Adam West and what's his name, Burt Ward, right? Burt Ward, yeah, going to '60s swinger parties together, probably in the costumes. <laughs> oh, I mean. Yeah, that's money on the table. <laughs> he didn't. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, speaking of that series, James Brolin and Monty Landis, another bit player in the film, were guest stars in the original Batman series. And the Batmobile can be seen cruising through the Warner Brothers lot in the film. I'll do the music too. I know you're. Uh... No, I hate Danny Elfman so much. In fact, I, when I was watching clips of this earlier today, I was like, God, I. F- hate this music I love your interpretation of Danny Elfman God come up with another f***ing idea dude come on we're all begging you um, unsurprisingly at the time Danny Elfman did not consider himself a composer uh, when he was offered the gig he was coming off of a uh, Oingo Boingo, a band that friend pe- of the pod. Oingo Boingo, a band that people man, they're like number three yeah. after like Fish, mm-hmm. um, and like reggae. That whenever I tell people I don't like it, they're like, "No, dude, like no, Oingo Boingo, man, like you just have you heard?" And like, yeah, it, it sucks. It's nerd rock. It's like they might be giants. Like, <laughs> get it away from me, unserious people. Was that, was that a guy from the Atlantic who just kept using the phrase deeply unserious when he was talking about people smoking weed in public in New York? He was like, New York, it just feels deeply unserious to me. That's what Oingo Boingo is to me. Some people are like, that's the point. Not me. Not Alex Hyde. Not this guy. Not this guy. Um... <laughs> when I met Tim Burton, it was like, why me? Why would you want me to do a score? That's crazy. Tim was like, I don't know. I've seen your band and I think you could do it. Ah, to be a white guy in Hollywood in the 80s. It was kind of that simple. He showed me scenes from the movie and I recorded a piece and sent in a cassette. I never expected to hear from them again. About two weeks later, I got a call saying, you got the job. My first reaction to my manager was to call him and tell him I can't do it. He goes, I've been working on this for two weeks. You call and you tell them you can't do it. I slept on it and decided that I decided the single piece of anything that's guided my entire life was saying, F*** it. Like, I hope I don't wreck their movie. Whatever any of that means. Uh, he'd also done a score for 1980's Forbidden Zone, which, oh, of course, had the benefit of being directed by his brother. But young Danny Elfman changed his position on scoring after he heard his obnoxious carnival polka bullshit played by a full orchestra which set so many of us on a course to teeth gnashing and wailing and pulling at our hair every time we see his name pop up in the credits no i jest i i you know he's fine he's he's no uh 
Who else do I hate? Jerry He's no Goldberg. James Horner. Oh, Jerry you know Goldsmith's fine. James Horner sucks. You can't say that because he died tragically, but that's the guy who self-plagiarized and the guy who like two oh, ideas. Actual plagiarized. Actual plagiarized. And he had two ideas and one of them was penny whistles. Like, <laughs> that guy. God rest his soul. Um, he's worked with Tim Burton on like 98% of Burton's filmography. Um, the exceptions being Ed Wood, which is Tim Burton's best movie, and Sweeney Todd, which... There was already music for that by a guy you might have heard of. Uh, (laughs) He was called in to provide the score for Big Top Pee-wee, but because it was produced by a different studio, was not allowed to use any cues from the original movie and had to start from scratch, as if anyone could tell. Uh, He says the Pee-wee pieces were inspired by Nino Rota, who is probably most famous for um, the Godfather theme. Oh, weird. I don't hear any comparisons. I guess I hear it in like the, you know, the Godfather theme is in that sort of spooky quasi Latin Andalusian minor, like the Phrygian mode that has that like flat nine, flat nine uh, minor third tonality to it. And like Elfman's got a lot of that kind of not quite Spanish, but very like minor dissonant sort of stuff in there. So I guess I get that, but I don't know. Uh, it's all f- it's a, like damn poker rhythm. <laughs> just sense my teeth on edge like ska anything with that like really insistent like rigid like upbeat thing i'm just like what is musical about this to you chink 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 a guitar part and a oompa, 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 oompa. yeah what i ah and to make that like the crux of your artistic identity for like a full like five years, right? Like until the Batman theme, like that was it. That was that was what you got when you got a Danny Elfman score. You got obnoxious oompa. Shit. Um, you should cut a lot of that <laughs> of me being mean to Danny Elfman. He's uh, you know, he's redheaded. I'll come back in right here. Pee-wee's Big Adventure was released on August 9th, 1985, and Paul Rubens, in character as Pee-wee, and Claude on a costume crown for some reason, and Elizabeth Daly arrived together in a bike-driven chariot to the premiere. Aside from the lavish bike-centric party, the studio was a little uncertain about the prospects for this weird little movie. Rather than go for a big, splashy national release, they rolled it out slowly on a regional basis. <laughs> in limited but, release. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But after it got a warm reception, they went big. Made for just $7 million, Pee-wee's Big Adventure earned $41 million at the box office, and it was also a success with critics. David Anson of Newsweek described the film as, quote, I love this phrase, Mattel surrealism. Mm, nice. A, a toy store fantasia in primary colors and 50s decor. Whoever proposed teaming up Pee-wee, a.k.a. Paul Rubens, with 26-year-old director Tim Burton knew what they were doing. Together, they've conspired to make a true original, a live-action cartoon, brash enough to appeal to little kids and yet so knee-deep in irony that its faux-naivete looks as chic as the latest retro fashions. That's cool. Variety compared Paul Rubens to Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton... And Roger Ebert placed Pee-wee's Big Adventure on his list of guilty pleasures, writing, The movie is not just a strange little man acting goofy. 
Pee-wee's created a whole fairy tale universe as consistent and fascinating as Alice's Wonderland or the world of the Hobbits in Lord of the Rings. Pee-wee's Big Adventure is one of those movies like The Wizard of Oz, I think, that kids can look at in one state of mind while grown-ups enjoy it on a completely different level. And it was reportedly at the premiere for Pee-wee's Big Adventure that a studio executive for CBS approached Rubens about the prospect of doing a Pee-wee Herman children's show. But that is an adventure for next week's episode. Join us back here for a deep dive into Pee-wee's Playhouse, which found Paul Rubens at the peak of his auteurist powers before he took an infamous trip into a movie theater and endured a tabloid hell that nearly destroyed his career. In short, join us next time for more porn and less Oingo Boingo. Play us out, Danny. And fade. <laughs> you get no sign off from me this week. Give mean spirited Danny Elfman impression. <laughs> and you'll like it. <sighs>《Too Much Information》was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Serve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Bring along the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies to add a sprinkle of joy to your workday. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.